folks. Welcome to the House of Kraus. I'm Richard Kraus. It is a packed house over here today. We had to break out the folding chairs. We've ordered in some pizzas. Sit back and enjoy the conversations. A little bit later on, Tempest Storm will be here. She's a legendary exotic dancer. Stan Lee drops by. Uh, Stan Lee, of course, the architect of the Marvel Universe. Moon Zappa will be here. Moon Zappa, formerly known as Moon Unit Zappa, singer of Valley Girl, actor and many other things, uh, is here to talk about her father and her relationship with Frank Zappa. First up though, Jay Baruchel is here. Jay Baruchel, of course, is the star of the comedy series Man Seeking Woman. Uh, you know him from movies like How to Train Your Dragon, Goon, Goon, Last of the Enforcers, uh, which he co-wrote and made his directorial debut on. His other films include Knocked Up, This is the End, She's Out of My League, Tropic Thunder, it goes on and on and on. You know him, you love him. He's also one of the world's great Montreal Canadian fans. Did you know, though, that he's also a giant soccer fan? He's made a movie about it. That's how big a fan he is. It's called Celtic Soul. It follows the unlikely bromance between Jay and Ewan O'Callaghan, an Irish soccer journalist. They take a journey across two continents and three countries to discover Jay's ancestral roots and fulfill a lifelong dream. Celtic Soul is on VOD right now. First up, though, I had to get Jay to explain the appeal of soccer to me because, frankly, and please don't tweet at me, don't write me the letters, the appeal of soccer is lost on me. Here's Jay Baruchel. Let's talk about soccer, though, right, first. So let's start there. I'm going to tell you that I don't really know anything about soccer. I don't understand soccer. People tell me all the time, oh, man, you'd love it. You'd love it if you watch it. Imagine it's like a chess game come to life. And, and, and... It, it'll it'll it, it, you'll be enraptured by it if you just pay attention. I watch it and I don't get it. <laughs> what is it for you that has drawn you in in such a big way? Um, that it's a very uh, I think all the the best games are uh, simple to learn and difficult to master. And uh, and I think soccer is a perfect example of that. It's um, it's also the world's sport. It's a sport that all you need to learn how to play it is a ball. And so it opens up the world to the to this game everyone has a chance to to do something in soccer um also growing up watching hockey uh the two sports are cousins to me you know, each has a net with a goalie in front of it defenders and then forwards in front and you just right. try to get something in that net and so um yeah, I, there, there's something incredibly uh, beautiful and ancient and you know it, it satisfies a bunch of things uh, you know it's just crazy to see feats of athleticism, but also um, th there's something special in soccer. Like I said, the fact that it's played in every country in the world and that nine times out of ten in most of these places, uh, the people hang their, their – they live or die on the fate of these teams. Their identity is wrapped up That's within it. their love of their That's soccer exactly team. That's right. And a good chunk of the world. Maybe not here as much, and, and certainly I don't think in the U.S. And part of what I've been told is that one of the reasons that soccer is a little harder to see mm -hmm. there, particularly, because we, we do have broadcasts here, but mm -hmm. they're usually satellite, I guess, uh, is that there's no room for commercials. They play for 45 yeah. minutes, and then and, and that's the networks are like, we don't know what to do with that's this. That's right, and, and, and that's, again, another appeal of soccer is that it, it's not a... Uh, whistle sport. It doesn't stop every three right. seconds. Like the you know last 
you know, minute of a football game can take two hours. Um, Soccer just plays and has a nice flow to it. Um, But, yeah, I I think over here, you know, there's more kids playing soccer uh, than playing hockey Mm -hmm. in Canada. That's been a stat for a while. Um, And and I also think that those kids are growing up into – they're going to turn into grownups. And every year – Look, this is a beautiful multicultural country, and most of the people that emigrate to Canada come from soccer countries. And so I, I think if you t- turn on the MLS, um, you'll see a quantum leap every every single season. In the past five years, I've seen the uh, North American soccer game uh, evolve into as good soccer as you can see anywhere. Do you think that soccer will one day replace hockey? Because I, I'm told that the the numbers are going down for hockey in well as you just said yeah. but they're going down for hockey and as many kids aren't playing because you know it's it, expensive it's one number thing. one it's expensive um uh, it's it, so it, it a lot of people i know how many kids i know had to like couldn't play hockey because right. their parents couldn't afford the equipment and couldn't afford the fees to be part of a team and all this other this that and the other um it also Asks a lot of a body playing hockey, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and uh, and and I and not to say that soccer doesn't, but it asks less. And yeah. I think that you know you're uh, less worried about your kid's well-being if he's out on the soccer pitch. Maybe. When did you find time? Because you always have four hundred things on the go. It <laughs> seems. When did you find time to become a Glasgow Celtic fan? Oh, uh, and it's I, not the Celtics. Is yeah, it? I made the mistake. No, no, that's fine. You, uh, everyone over here does. Uh, no, um, I I fell in love with Celtic uh, probably when I was like eighteen or nineteen. Um, and, uh, I caught a game on TV at the same time that I was playing this computer game, which is one of my great loves and still a great obsession of mine is this game called Football Manager, uh, which is constantly the highest rated game on Steam, even though no (laughs) one on this side of the Atlantic plays it. I've never heard of it. It's cited in divorce proceedings in the UK (laughs) constantly. It really, really is. Um, it's, it's a way of life for lads in the United Kingdom, um, and, Visiting my friend in university over there, I just got hooked on it, and so and and basically, it's a entirely text based simulator. You don't control a single player. You pick the team. You do the coaching. You yell at them. You pick the the scouts and all that <laughs> stuff. But when they play, they just play, and you watch them. And um and so, I was playing that game. I think I saw um one of Celtics' great strikers, Henrik Larsson, score a beautiful goal on TV. Um, I There was something in the jersey. Uh, I heard the songs on TV, saw the shamrock. Um, and then when I started doing a bit of research, it, like, it definitely piqued something in me. And all of the research into Celtic and why they were created and what their history is and what they mean to, to their fans... I just got swept away. I got carried away. And um, and I think there's a lot of people that fall in love with the Habs later on in their life who aren't inundated with it. Right. And part of that is the romanticism and the history and the fact that the Habs transcend hockey and there's all these cultural, political, religious implications. Be- because the Habs are your other great love. That's it. <laughs> and And so I saw an analogy with Celtic that, again, this is another club that transcends the sport that they play and is more important than the league that they're part of. Tell me what some of that is then. Tell me what some of the history is. Tell me what uh, people will expect to see then if they go see Celtic Soul. Um, so 
Celtic uh, as a football club is a is is kind of a a cool strange thing. It's started by uh, it was started as a bit of charity by a Catholic church in Glasgow to accommodate this high volume of Irish immigrants that came over during the famine, and so you had all of these. Uh, working class and uh, and below that uh, immigrants who came to to Glasgow, and um, they were all Catholics, and the church thought we could keep them out of trouble, and so Celtic was. It, you you cannot uh, dis, you you can't separate the loaf of bread from the soccer ball. Right. They they fed their uh, parishioners and they gave them a, a a ball to play with. That eventually. Uh, evolved into Glasgow Celtic Football Club. To this day, it has still a vital connection to that specific church. And uh, when you walk up to Paradise, uh, to, to Celtic Park, and you're in the front walkway there, one of the very first things you see is the word poverty uh, written on the front of the stadium. Um, helping poor people, lo- giving them something to look forward to, being a vital part of a working-class community that's never not been a part of Celtic. How many how many big stadiums can you go to in North America that have the word poverty mm-hmm. front and center in the front of it? So so that, that's what I mean. It, 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 it's more than just a soccer team. It's more than just they won last week. It's what it's meant. Um, yeah, like I said, it transcends sport and becomes cultural, political, religious, linguistic, all these things. And that's what I was saying to you before we, we turned the microphones on is one of the things I really loved about Celtic Soul is that as a non- soccer fan, I can watch this and the story is universal. It's not just about the sport. There's some exciting sports stuff that happens in it, but it's not about the sport so much. It's about why the sport exists. It's about why people are drawn to it. It's about what makes the the culture of the the Celtic enthusiasm so interesting. That's it. That's, and, and I think that, um, rabid live or die fandom, uh, is something that is universal. I think yeah. that, you know, in this movie, it's about um, our love for Celtic, but I think that people can watch this movie and see their love for their favorite band or or their favorite comic book or whatever you did, whatever you're obsessed with, whatever uh, you use as mile markers in your life, however you reference, you know, a true fan, if you ask them a year, um, and what does that year mean to them? They'll bust out, oh, that's that, that issue came out this year, or that's the record that came out this year, or that's that great Habs game. That, oh, I remember I was there. Mm-hmm. That. And and that's something that's pretty special. And so absolutely, if you're a sports fan, you'll love the movie, but you do not need to be because it's, as I keep saying, it's about so much more than that. Um, so, so yeah, I, and, and I think the other thing is, is that... Um, Everyone here uh, in this country, for the most part, is from somewhere else originally. Mm-hmm. And and I think Canada is a country made up of immigrants. And your family's background and your family's sort of origin story is very important because it's, a, it's your means of identifying yourself against the rest of the people you grow up with here. Man Seeking Woman is your other TV show That's that right. is out. It's based on Simon Rich's book, The Last Girlfriend on Earth, yep. executive produced by Lauren Michaels. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a Broadway video jam. Yeah. yeah, and and is do you meet with Lauren? I oh I have oh yeah. yes 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 I I remember uh, um, I, uh, getting into a, a, a fairly uh, 
robust uh, discussion with him uh, <laughs> about uh, about me uh, about where I lived in Canada versus uh, the states and right. Toronto versus New York and all that stuff. No, he's a he's a lovely man and um, he's been nothing but uh, kind uh, to me and uh, and has really been an um, amazing guardian of our show. Yeah, and the show's doing very well. Thanks. Yeah, I'm 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 real proud of it. We we like to call it our our pirate ship. You know, we we. We never thought we'd be able to do more than a pilot right. uh, because of, yeah, how unique it is. It, it's surreal. Yeah. It is a surreal story. There's monsters and all sorts of things all that sorts pop of up, stuff. but it's really funny. Though. Thank you. I agree. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's, you know, I'm a, obviously a tad biased, but I think it's the funniest show on television. Um, all, all the same, we know what a big ask it is. That it, you know, it's uh, not a multicam. Um, there's right. nobody, there's no real, like, let's be honest, I'm not, like, that famous. And uh, and, and it's and it's super weird, and we go to some crazy <laughs> places. And so that's why we call it our pirate ship. Every, every time that they tell us we can make more episodes, we're like, Jesus Christ, we're yeah. run, running a racket up here. Jay Baruchel, what a great guy. He almost made me want to go to a soccer game. That's how infectious his passion for the game is. Uh, I haven't done that yet, but I will keep going to see his movies, and of course I'll keep watching his TV show, Man Seeking Woman. Next up, Tempest Storm. She was the mistress, and check this out, to both Elvis and JFK. If that wasn't enough, she became an international star on the stage and the screen in the 1950s. When we did this interview, she was 87 and was still considered to be the greatest living exotic dancer. Exploring her dramatic rise to fame, Tempest Storm is a feature documentary that bears all to tell the controversial life story of an American sex icon. In this part of the interview, Tempest talks about how she got started in the career that put her in the sights of a future president of the United States and the king of rock and roll. But I finally went to see her, and uh, she hired me. She's First, I walk in, she says, uh, take your clothes off. And I said, I beg your pardon? She says, well, I want to see if you have any scars or anything. And I, I said, trust me, I don't have any scars. <laughs> Here's this lady, lady producer, you know, I, I said, Trust me, I don't have any scars. I said, I must, I must see. So then I, I said, do you think my chest is too big for this business? She says, honey, they can't be too big for this business. <laughs> and at, she hired me. <laughs> at that point, and not to be indelicate about this, but your chest measurement was 44 at that point, right? I had, they told me uh, so many measurements right. in the news. One minute I was 40 or 44 and 48, but actually there was about a 40. It was about a 40, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, but the exaggeration was good for business, yeah, I suppose. exactly, exactly. <laughs> now, do you remember the first time you stepped out on a stage? Yes, I do. I was wearing a purple gown, and I was using a St. Louis Blues, and I they had backstage a... A machine where the girls made their own costumes, and I made my co uh, two-piece costume out of purple satin, <laughs> and I and I used uh, used uh, St. Louis blues and one one other one other song, and Lillian Hunt said, who was a producer, she said, no matter what happens on stage, just keep going, so. 
The minute I walked out on stage, my the snaps were very loose on the on the bottom, and the bottom fell off. She, so I threw it in into the wings, and I just kept kept going. And that was my experience the first time that I stepped on stage. And what was going through your mind? So your your costume kind of falls apart. Right. You're about to be naked in front of a room full of strangers. Right. What was going through your mind? Well, at that time, it wasn't like it is today. Right. It, it was uh, rhinestone uh, net net pants. Yeah. You look like your skin with rhinestones up the back and up the front. Right. And rhinestones on the bra. Right. So you're not exactly naked. But, you're, no, you're, but for the time, you were I'm, as close to naked as anyone exactly, was going to be in public. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and were you, were you scared? Were you... Uh, elated to be getting the attention? I, I was elated at getting all this attention, yeah. which from my home life, you know, I didn't get this kind of attention. Yeah. So I, uh, it, it, was, it thrilled me. I was so thrilled. <laughs> and, and things happened fairly quickly after that for you. You started to get noticed. Yes. Uh, I'd been in the business about six months in the news media, thought that the uh, Academy Awards were getting kind of stuffy. Right. And they uh, had a night, this newspaper reporter, I remember his name, Dick Williams, came down to the theater. They were looking for a girl with with a big bust. And there were other girls, and they picked me. And it was called the the Mickey Awards. Uh, Phil Harris got an award for getting the most phone calls at the Brown Derby, which was a <laughs> famous restaurant. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I got a, a Mickey Award for having the biggest props in Hollywood. <laughs> and, and I was on my way after that. <laughs> well, because that, I've seen photos from that. So that's, uh, you know, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis were there. Correct. Like the, it was Correct. a big Hollywood event. And a very small restaurant on Santa Monica Boulevard. It was a big event, yes. Yeah. And I was thrilled. I, and I walk out just like, you know, I knew what I was doing. Right. <laughs> now, your name, your birth name is Annie Banks. Now, yes. you are known professionally as Tempest Storm. How did that happen? Uh, Lily Hunt, uh, the producer, she said, uh, we have to change your name. And she said, uh, what about Sunny Day? I said, I really don't feel like a Sunny Day. <laughs> I said, do you have another one? How about Tempest Storm? I said, I'll take it. <laughs> Did you just like the ring of yeah, it? I like the ring of yes. Yeah. Yeah. And with your red it's hair, it seemed red. to make more sense, right? Make more sense, yes, <laughs> correct. You were friends with Elvis and friends with JFK. Let's start with John F. Kennedy. How did you meet John F. Kennedy? Uh, Kennedy's uh, bodyguards came, came in, and they talked to me, and they said, would you like to meet uh, John Kennedy? I said, well, he's married, isn't he? And they said, well, that doesn't make any difference. (laughs) I I says, well, (laughs) I'll have to think about that. Well, they came back the the second night, and he said, it would really, like, he was a senator at this this time. And I said, okay, I will meet him. And they picked me up after the show the next night, and that's how I, I met him. You met him, and you, and, and you were friends with him for some fr- time. I was friends with him, yes. right? And I was friends with him after he became president. Yeah. 
and everybody says, I bet you've been in the White House a lot of times. I said, well, I'm not going to answer that. (laughs) (laughs) You can just nod. Have you been to the White House a lot of times? Uh, Yeah, you can just nod. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And Elvis. He was an absolutely fabulous man. Elvis. You were Elvis's girlfriend. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. I I don't know that I've ever said that sentence to anyone else ever. So tell me (laughs) about... Well, I was his girl. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me how you met Elvis. Well, I was starring at the Minsky Review at the Dunes Hotel in Las Vegas. And he came in with his... Memphis Mafia yeah. that he traveled with, the three guys, and they saw the show. And they were taking a lot of photos backstage of everybody. And I had some friends that would come in from uh, Dallas, you know, and they, were, they would meet us after the show up in the lounge and uh, have a drink. And I said, well, you guys have a drink because I don't, I don't drink. <laughs> <laughs> and so I met them. And uh, after we were all taking photos backstage, you know, and all of a sudden, I said to the photographer, I said, is this going to take very long? And I'm standing by Elvis Presley. <laughs> and I was to meet someone in the lounge after my show, right. pe- people. And so anyway, I, I, I finally got a, a, away from that section. And I joined these th- three people in the lounge. And Elvis came out, and he was in the course girls and all of a sudden he looked over at me he came down I re- always remember because I had this special beautiful dress on and he came over and kneeled down and he was sort of twiddling with his finger with my skirt I call, <laughs> today I call it the Elvis Presley dress <laughs> <laughs> you still have it he's yes you I do, do. <laughs> and he's he said um, could I join you I said ask these gentlemen of course and that's how we met and came together and started mm-hmm. dating. And you kind of insisted, and I, by the way, I'm speaking with Tempest Storm, the subject of a, a new documentary that's in theaters right now, uh, and a legendary uh, performer in her own right. We're talking about your relationship with Elvis Presley. He wanted to come upstairs, and you said, I won't let you come in through the lobby. Is that right? That's that's right, because <laughs> at that time, the dunes, you could only get to the... Uh, suites one way, right. you know, there was no back. So you had to go through the lobby and people would see, see him. Right, and know, know where my suite was. <laughs> <laughs> so he says, is there a back entrance? I said, there's a gate back there, I think. And he said, well, I'll try it. So he he climbed over the, over the gate and he zipped. Uh, he ripped his pants legs. <laughs> <laughs> he, he got to my suite. I said, well, at least I don't have to undress you. <laughs> <laughs> what a delight. Tempest Storm, check out the documentary uh, that is all about her life. Next up, Moon Zappa. Now, formerly known as Moon Unit, she tasted her father Frank Zappa's fame as the grody to the max vocalist of Frank's top 10 hit Valley Girl. Now, she says at the time that all that was happening, that was a little bit too much for her, and she kind of hated 
sharing her father, Frank Zappa, big time rock star, with the public. Maturity has brought a different perspective, and now the 48-year-old is sharing her life and her iconoclastic father with the world with the documentary that covers his creative life and times. It's called Eat That Question, Frank Zappa in His Own Words, and it uses a collection of archival interviews and television clips to paint what I like to call a word portrait of Zappa without any context, voiceover, or other documentary tricks. Uh, She's a talker. I love talking to Moon. Zappa. Here's that conversation. When you watch this film, do you see uh, the Frank who was your father, or do you see a public Frank, and or is there a difference? Um, mm-hmm. um I see both. Right. I see both. Uh, I think that, and definitely there was a difference. Uh, but but what was interesting for me as an adult watching this uh, film and versus being a kid growing up with him was I began to wonder, oh, if, it, if that was a persona that he kind of adopted because he understood, oh, this is a, this, this, this shape of me, this costume me is also, uh, it, it's also, it's, it, it's, it can be my public me. I, I'm not. I'm not entirely certain now when I when I watch it because uh, even the stance of thinking he was ugly or or thinking that he. Um, uh, I mean, I grew up thinking he thought he was ugly, and now I wonder, did he think he was ugly? <laughs> Just on the most basic level, and then you think. Does he think he's excluded? Did he really think he was excluded? And it's 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 just interesting to 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 view it as a, as a as a parent now and as an adult. So, do you think that uh, your perception of him then, you know, as you were growing up in the house? I mean, he was. It, it's hard for me because he has loomed so large in you know my appreciation of music and my my musical life for so long. It's kind of hard for me to imagine that, you know, you get ready for school and, and he's sitting around having a coffee, you know, before going to the studio or doing whatever he was during the day, that he had some kind of regular life. But it must have been the case, right? Oh, he definitely had a regular life. He, uh, uh, the thing for me, it really is hilarious. I, uh, naively, I saw this, again, this quiet, shy man who, uh, who thought he was ugly, who couldn't cook, who deflected with humor, couldn't really have a, 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 a confrontational conversation uh, without deflecting with humor. He, he was, um, uh, he just struck me as just a, I don't know, just a Sicilian guy. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, to see that he had this whole other life away from us, I just projected that quiet, hardworking uh, shy guy onto the world, and so as an adult, going wait a second, that of course that's ridiculous. Of course he had this other life. And for example, I knew he had cheated a few times, but I didn't realize the magnitude of the of the cheating. And uh, from one perspective, it's a fantastic rock and roll perk, but for a daughter, it's it feels pretty crappy to have a a, a cheater dad. And it, it 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 definitely sends a different message to to a daughter than to a son, I think. Um, and, and so that that that's something I'm, I'm also reconciling and i'm and i also have tremendous respect for him but it's it's, it's also confusing did you learn anything i mean it, and uh, that sounds maybe silly but you know this is an hour and a half of very compressed 
talking and and there are moments like when you said about the cheating he says something i don't do drugs unless i take penicillin when i'm yes, on the road yeah that was a, that, i was flabbergasted by yeah. that and that actually prompted me to start asking uh, cuz i saw the film before my mother passed and i started asking everybody that was coming to say goodbye to my mother i started asking was he like a little bit of a slut or a lot of bit of a slut and uh, cuz you just again i i had this I just projected that that dad. I could understand a, a handful of times cheating because my mother was uh, he was away, or my mother was uh, would become angry, and they'd have arguments, and once he moved the groupie into the house, and yeah. it was the era, and on and on. But uh, but it was quite shocking to to hear uh, other data about how how uh, how prolific he was also as a as a as an enjoyer of uh, the offerings. <laughs> uh, does this film, when you watch it, what feelings does it bring up for you? Because um, your your dad passed some time ago now, but here he is, you know, in living color in front of you again. Um, are you able to sort of separate the, the public and the private, or is it all jumbled up for you? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm able to separate what was my private experience, and, and uh, I hated sharing him with the fans growing up, and now I really love hearing the stories about the, the, the moment that they, uh, that the, the thunderbolt struck and what, what transformed their lives, because he was, a, he, he, he did speak to the underdogs, and he did uh, illuminate many minds, and he did, um, uh, you, you, you have a little taste of it, and you, you want more. You, you feel uh, just uh, you want to have them all to yourself, and I certainly had that feeling. So now I like sharing those stories, but at the time, I just thought I really want them all to myself. I once, I once brought them to show and tell uh, really? when I was, I think, in third grade, so it would have been about eight, and I was so excited to share my dad with the class, like, this is my dad, and then he spent the... Uh, most of the time, tickling all of the other children, and I was furious. I was just like, "What a giant waste of time this was!" <laughs> but they loved it, you know. It, it, it's interesting. I mean, I, it just for me seems like such a different world. But uh, you know, I saw him for the first time at Maple Leaf Gardens, just down the road from where I'm sitting right now, and uh, it was probably 1981 or 82 or something like that, and it gave me a, a much fuller appreciation for the music because I think the way to experience that music was live because Definitely. It, it just felt different to me than sitting at home and listening to the records. Yeah. And, and you get a great sense of that in this movie. Um, I like that this movie focuses, by and large, I mean, there are a number of the of the songs that kind of everybody knows in their Bobby Brown and things like that, but there's a lot of the more avant-garde stuff in here, and it's beautiful, and it's really lovely to see the look on his face near the end of the film as he's listening to this ensemble playing uh, this piece of music that he's written, and the look in his film, says, or on his face, says more, I think, than almost all the conversation that has come before it about his love of music. Yeah. It really struck me. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. Um, now, what don't people know about your father that you wish that they did? Well, I think the 
film really nails it. I mean, this is, the, this is exactly how I wish that the world could perceive him. I think that's why this film, that's why I'm doing all the, the press for it and, 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 and was begging them, please let me go and <laughs> come to the screenings. Please let me help because I, I, I so believe in this, this film. Uh, and while there have been uh, many films uh, made about my father and I'm sure many to come, uh, this one for me really tells the story of my father answering his calling and, and the stamina required to try to see a dream through. And that is a story, that's a human story. And I think that's why this story connects on that level universally. And then if you're, if you're, uh, and then just my father as a, as a character, this, this, um, this misfit, this misfit trying to be seen in this, uh, kind of erudite, uh, fancy ass world he 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 just in a in a culture that doesn't even have a, a point of reference for it i mean in overseas you can go hear classical music uh any night of the week and you get to even hear it in a castle and you get to hear it maybe near where the guy who composed it was when he when he wrote it and so there's the it's it's intertwined with with the culture there and as my father says in the film we're just not uh accustomed to excellence in, in this country. And so very often, even if we're exposed to it, we don't have a, a point of reference and an entry point to, to even interface with excellence. And so that's it, why he was such an advocate for, um, for culture and for um, and diversity and exposure to other 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 things. I mean, he'd come home from a tour and he'd bring back uh, music for me, and it would be the Three Mustafas and the Bulgarian Women's Music Choir and and the Modets and Lena Lovitch and Nina Hagen and uh, and Gang of Four and maybe some Amy Grant on the side. <laughs> so he he was just. Uh, he was just interested in in every one and everything, and I remember another time he he uh, he sat down with me and uh, he he showed me a, a porno film called uh, Fatliners. Flatliners had just come out, and they somebody had decided this what that's a pretty good title, but we 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 think we can do better. Right. Fatliners, and my father was just watching this uh, as a kind of. Uh, uh, cultural anthropologist saying, can you believe we share a planet with these people? And, and so, because, uh, you know, from one perspective, you can say, who sits down and watches porn with their dad? But this is, this is I, I, was, uh, I had uh, the awareness of, of how wrong that was and how oh so right it was, because this is, this is a satirist saying, good God, this planet is a spinning toilet, and, and we, get to, we have front row seats any day of the week. Moon Zappa, the world is a swirling toilet bowl. I love that. Stan Lee has been writing comic books for over 70 years. He laid the foundation for the wildly popular Marvel Universe and characters like Peter Parker and Bruce Banner popped out of his imagination. You've seen him in cameos in all the Marvel movies. Now listen as he talks about his life and illustrious career in comics. Do you look at comic books and superheroes as being the modern equivalent of fairy tales, good versus evil, clear morality, all that kind of thing? Oh, absolutely. Especially the fact, you know, in fairy tales, most of them have people or objects, people mostly, that are bigger than life. I mean, you have giants, you have wizards, you have witches, you have all sorts of things 
that are, as I say, bigger than life, and that if they were a movie, they'd require special effects. So to me, comic books are like fairy tales for older readers because they have all the elements that fairy tales had, all the elements of fantasy, but they're written for older readers, who, and they're written in such a way that everything seems plausible and possible. Do you think that we, the world, needs superheroes now more than ever, even maybe when you first started writing about them? Well, I think the world needs something to make it a little more peaceful and a little more thoughtful of others. And if superheroes help to do that, I'm very happy. I know the world needs entertainment very badly. People need to have things that they enjoy, pleasant things. And so many people seem to love comic books and the movies that are based on comics. And I think that's a good thing. You know, I told people that I was going to be speaking with you, and so many people asked me to say thank you to you, to thank you for creating characters that spoke to them, to thank you for giving them an interest in reading. I heard that over and over and over. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Now, when it's all said and done, what do you think the legacy is? Is it the characters? Is it that you've got kids reading? What do you think it will be? Oh, I would just hope it's the fact that maybe I brought some enjoyment to people if they enjoyed reading my stories. I, I didn't go out of my way to be an instructor. I mean, the business about kids reading is interesting, though, because when I started writing the comics, I made up my mind that I would use an adult vocabulary and... I figured the young children would know what the words mean by the use in the sentence, or if they had to go to a dictionary and look up a word, that's not the worst thing in the world that could happen. Because when I got into comics, they was I felt they were so badly written, it's as though they were written for people who were illiterate. And that bothered me. I didn't want to be part of that. So I did try to use the kind of language and dialogue that would um, be suitable for older people, but use it in such a way that youngsters could understand. Now, you started writing obituaries and press releases and things like that. What advice, then, would you give to writers, aspiring writers today? Oh, I'm not good at that. I see. I was lucky. But um, I, again, I would try if you're an aspiring writer. The thing to do, of course, is write. If you can write yourself a book and send it to a publisher and hope he or she will like it, that's wonderful. But if you can't do a whole book or something of that sort, try to get a job somewhere where writing is important. If you could get to a job at a publishing house where maybe you become a reader or a critic or something of that sort and little by little get into doing your own writing, it's you've got to just look around. Me, I found somebody actually came to me from a hospital that needed a... Um, a publicity writer, which always surprised me. I thought, well, what is the publicity writer supposed to do? Tell people to get sick so they'll go to the hospital? But we, um, it was a job, and I wrote their publicity releases. And then I worked for, an, I got a job at a news service 
writing obituaries. And, you know, if you're somebody famous, even if you're alive, your obituary is already written because they want to have it available when you die right away. So I was writing obituaries of people who were still alive, which got to be a little bit depressing. But it was a living, and I got experience in writing. So all I could say is, if someone wants to be a writer, just try to get jobs in areas where there's a lot of writing done. Your cameos in the films are legendary. Who would play you in the film that they make of your life? Well, let's see. Clark Gable and Errol Flynn are dead now. It would be pretty tough. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure I'll I'll, I'll ask around and get some. uh, Perhaps when you're here in Toronto, if I see you, I'll I'll come up with some other. Maybe there'll be a volunteer. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Um, You know, the, the names of your characters, I mean, obviously, you know, for the last decades for decades we've been we've grown up with bruce banner and peter parker and things how did you come up with the names was and i've just noticed that alliteration seems important to you very important and it's it's because i have a bad memory (laughs) and if i could remember what one of the names was like it it was spider-man if i could remember his first name was peter then i knew his second name began with a p and it was easier for me to think of it and that's really the only reason i have a terrible memory for names and by putting the first and second letter making them the same i had a clue if i thought of one name i had a clue to what the the next name was (laughs) would you consider yourself a, a superhero expert then or are you someone who just lets your imagination run wild and what you come up with is what you come up with? Oh, no, I'm not an expert of any sort. I, I, I really try to think of stories that I myself would like to read. I try to think of characters that I myself would be interested in. And I think to myself, that I'm not that unusual. There must be a lot of people who have the same tastes that I do. So if I just write to please myself, hopefully I'm pleasing a lot of other people who, who enjoy the same things. And that's, I, I, in other words, I never try to write for a certain segment of the readership. I write for myself, and I hope that I'm not that unusual. If I like it, other people will like it. I think that might be the advice for the aspiring writers right there. Well, maybe. (laughs) And of all the characters that you've created, is it possible to say that you have a favorite? Well, people expect me to, so I always say Spider-Man, because that's what they expect. But I'm really not good at favorites. I, I really love them all. Yeah, and and they have been uh, so popular again. There's been this resurgence with them. Uh, Could you ever in your wildest imagination think that today in 2016 that we would still be talking about Spider-Man, that we'd still be talking about the Hulk, we'd still be talking about all these characters? Is that, could that have been in your imagination at all when you first started working in comic books? Not at all. I, In the beginning when I was writing these things, I was just hoping that somebody would buy them so that I could keep my job and be able to pay the rent. In a million years, I wouldn't have thought that I'd be traveling around the country talking to people like you about the comics or being interviewed about them or that people would be so interested in them. I mean, it's, it's incredible what has happened. 
Final question. I know I, I won't keep you on the phone much longer, but all superheroes have to have a flaw. And I wonder if it's if it's possible for you to say what yours is and which of your superheroes maybe you're, you line up with. Wow. Or you could relate to. Well, of course, I think of myself more as Tony Stark because he's glamorous and intelligent and handsome and all that. <laughs> but seriously, um, I think there's a little bit of everybody in all of these characters. I think that's why they seem to be popular because I tried to give them all hang-ups and some weaknesses and that none of them are really perfect. So they're just like regular people, I hope. Right. And I have to tell you one thing before you hang up. Okay. I have really enjoyed being interviewed by you. You asked intelligent questions, and best of all, I don't hear very well, and I have often trouble hearing people on the phone with me, but you speak so clearly, I wish you would take a job as my official inquisitor. Well, <laughs> if that job ever comes up, I'm more than happy to fill the void. <laughs> Thank you, Rich. Anyway, good talking to you, and good luck to you. Thank you, and, and right back at you, and, and have a great trip to Toronto. Thanks a million. Thanks so long. Stan Lee, what an amazing way to cap off uh, what I think was a pretty hot show here from the House of Krauss. Thanks so much. We're going to take a few minutes, fold up all the folding chairs, put them back in storage. Thanks for coming by. Thanks to Jake Baruchel, Moon Zappa, Tempest Storm, and Stan Lee. Also, thanks to you so much for coming by. Every Monday we put up a new show, so be sure to come back and visit us. You never know who's going to stop by for a visit. It may just be one of your favorite people. So come back and see us again.